We begin Matthew chapter 20 this morning. If you would open your Bibles, you'd be helped to follow along with us in Matthew chapter 20. There are Bibles in the pew racks if you would like to use those. We also have free Bibles. If you're here this morning and you need a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible as a free gift, so don't leave here without getting a Bible. We're making our way through Matthew's Gospel, so we finished chapter 19 last week, and this week we start Matthew chapter 20. This uh, account is unique to, to Matthew's Gospel, so um, I've never preached on this passage before. And this passage challenged me a lot, even causing me to reconsider my whole doctrine of rewards in heaven. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. This is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ speaking as if He were here with us today, and He is. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Let's pray again. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for how Your Word challenges us. Father, we pray that You would help us to feel the sense of outrage that those first hearers would have felt when they heard this story that Jesus tells. We ask, O oh Lord, that we would, we would see Your grace for what it is, 
that we would realize our great need of this grace. And Father, we, we pray that in a new and a fresh way, that Your lavish, extravagant grace that You've given us would be amazing to us again. In a new way, in a powerful way, that we would stand in awe that You have chosen us. Lord, that You've given us this day, that You have called us to be Your people, that You have chosen us before the foundation of the world, that You are merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That as the Psalm 23, 6 says, You pursue us. You chase us down with goodness and mercy all of our days. Father, help us. Help us enjoy You today. Enjoy Your grace. Enjoy Your mercy. And we pray that as we do that, God, You would transform our lives. For Jesus' sake, Amen. The last three weeks, we've studied the rich young ruler and Jesus' instruction to His disciples about riches and wealth after this encounter. We saw the rich young ruler chose his wealth and possessions over Jesus, sadly. We saw that Jesus is the good God who demands perfection, provides perfection to all who follow Him, and is the treasure of heaven who is so valuable that He is worthy for us to give everything in order to follow Him, to gain Him. We saw that salvation for the rich... And everyone is difficult and even impossible apart from God, but God is able to do the impossible and save everyone who repents and believes and follows Jesus. And that brings us up to last week. Last week we saw Peter say that he and the disciples have left everything to follow Jesus, and then he asked a question, what will we have? And Jesus teaches that everyone who leaves everything to follow Him will receive rewards that far exceed what they leave behind. They will reign with Christ and they will enjoy eternal life as His beloved first and chosen ones. And Jesus ended with this proverb last week, Matthew 19.30, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And this week begins with four. Four, so, so we have Matthew 19.30, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Four, and then he tells this parable, and then the parable ends with Matthew 20.16, so the last will be first, and the first last. So just see that. See that what we're studying today is connected to everything that's come before, the encounter with the rich young ruler, Peter's question, what will we have? And Jesus ends with saying, uh, uh, the first will be last and the last first, for, and Jesus tells this parable to illustrate that statement, that proverb. He tells this parable to illustrate what it means, the first will be last and the last first, and then He ends the parable with that proverb again, a little different format, but the same meaning. So the last will be first and the first last. So get that, that big overall structure there. Last week we saw that from the world's perspective and even from the disciples' perspective, the rich young ruler seemed to be first, but unless he repented, he was not saved and he was last. But the last, the least, the small in this world, the disregarded and those viewed as unimportant, the weak and helpless like children, they will be first. And I think there's another meaning to this, par this proverb. 
Another application of this first will be last and last will be first proverb and it applies to Peter's response to the rich young ruler. Remember Peter's response. The disciples, Peter, they see this rich man, this young man, this man that's got everything going for him and Jesus says you need to sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And to that, Peter responds in Matthew 19, 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What will we have? And Jesus does tell Peter of all the great reward they will have for following Him. But Jesus also doesn't want His disciples to be like the grumbling workers in this parable. Remember these workers we just read about? They bore the scorching heat. They worked for all 12 hours. And they're grumbling because the Master made them equal. Made those who only worked one hour equal with them who'd worked 12 hours. Jesus doesn't want His disciples to be grumblers like that. And so He says the first will be last and the last will be first. John MacArthur interpreted this proverb, the first will be last and last first, in a way I'd never heard anybody else do it. I read all these commentaries, nobody brought this up, but I, I think he, he's actually on to something. Johnny Mac says, the only way that the first are last and the last are first is if everyone finishes the race at the same time. The only way the first is last and the last is first is if everybody finishes the race at the same time. And so Jesus starts with that proverb. He gives a parable where everybody finishes at the same time. Everybody gets the same reward. And then He ends with that proverb. The first shall be last and the last first. The only way the first are last and the last are first is if everyone finishes the race at the same time. Leon Morris and Arthur Carr comment on uh, this point. Peter and the rest of the twelve have indeed left all for Christ, but they must not think that their priority in time gives them an overwhelming advantage. Not only will the disciples not be the only ones called by Jesus, but they may not reach a higher place or a higher reward than some who follow them at an apparent disadvantage. They must beware of a spirit very prevalent among hard workers and not think too much of their own labors or be displeased because others are equally rewarded. So Jesus, in response to Peter's question, what then will we have? Peter and the disciples need to be reminded that all they have is by grace and grace alone. That, that Peter and the disciples would leave everything and follow Jesus was given by grace. It was a gift of grace. All that Peter and the disciples would do in obedience to Jesus would be by grace and grace alone. 
They needed to be reminded that there will be no sinful comparisons or work righteousness legalism in the kingdom of heaven. They need to be reminded that God always does what's righteous and just and that God is sovereign to freely give His grace and gifts to whomever He pleases, when He pleases, how He pleases. They need to be reminded that God is extravagantly and lavishly generous with His grace and rewards. And so here's... (laughs) Here's the long thesis statement for the sermon. In the kingdom of heaven, right? Jesus tells a parable about what the kingdom of heaven is like. What it's like under the reign of God. In the kingdom of heaven, there will be no sinful comparisons or work righteousness legalism. God always does what's right. God is absolutely sovereign and free to give grace to whom He pleases. God is extravagantly generous. So we should be thankful and amazed by grace. And all God's children are fundamentally equal in His sight. That's the long thesis statement. The short thesis statement is the parable of the amazing grace of the Master. The the short thesis statement is the parable of the amazing grace of the Master. This this parable is, is traditionally known as the parable of the labors in the vineyard or the parable of the workers in the vineyard. But Kenneth Bailey, I think, is rightly noted, it, it, that takes away the focus of what the, the parable is truly about, the parable of the amazing grace of the Master. That's the focus. This parable is about the amazing grace of the Master. The Master represents God. And so let, let's, let's, let's read again the parable of the amazing grace of the Master. Look at verses 1-10 through with me again. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. So let's think together about this parable of the amazing grace of the Master. The kingdom of heaven is like a vineyard, the text says. The kingdom of heaven, again, is the realm of God's rule and reign. And and the text says it's like a vineyard. Israel was often compared to a vineyard in the Old Testament. And the master of the house goes out to hire laborers. God represents the master of the house. The laborers are His people, His people. And even in this parable, we are reminded that God is like the hound of heaven chasing after His people with mercy. He goes out over and over and over and over again and hires more and more and more and more reminding us that Jesus is in, uh, Jesus and God, the Father, are in pursuit of lost sinners. They are the hound of heaven ch- chasing after 
their people with mercy. The master of the house and the laborers agree on the pay. They agree on a denarius a day. This is a, 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 the normal day's wage for a, a, a laborer in Jesus' day. And they agree at 6 a.m. At 6 a.m., he agrees with a group of workers to work a denarius a day, and they have an agreement. Verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, they work by an agreement. But then the master hires four more sets of laborers at four different later times in the day. So the master sees people standing around doing nothing at 9 a.m., which is the third hour. He sees more at 12 p.m., the sixth hour. At 3 p.m., that's the ninth hour. Uh, and uh, at the last hour, 5 p.m., the eleventh hour, the master goes and hires other workers. And again, beloved, you should see from this that God cares. God cares for people. He doesn't need all these workers. He, 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 he doesn't need someone to work one hour and then give them the same pay. That would be bad business practice. But this points us to the lavish grace, love, mercy, care, compassion that God has for His people. He's hiring people even at the 11th hour. And those the master hires later in the day trust the master to do what is right. Did you notice that in verse 4? You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Whatever is right, I will give you. And they don't come to an agreement like the first workers. They just trust that the master of the house is going to give them what is right. The master pays. They work, they work all day. They work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., 12 hours. Some obviously work less than others. But the master pays all five sets of workers the exact same wages. He directs that those hired last at 5 p.m. who only work one hour be paid first. And then those hired at 3 p.m., then those hired at 12 p.m., then those hired at 9 a.m., and last those hired at 6 a.m. Every single group is paid the exact same amount, one denarius. Those paid first, those hired at 5 a.m., uh, 5 p.m., those paid first and hired last at 5 p.m. get 12 times what the first group agreed to work for in a sense because they only worked one hour but got the same wage. Everyone except the workers hired first get a bonus. And this is to illustrate to us the Master's great generosity. His great generosity. The workers hired first think they're going to get paid more. And you have to ask yourself, how would you respond to this? I mean, you, you think... I mean, bro Brother Paul worked probably 12 hours in here one day in the heat, sanding all this stuff and doing all this. Now, now let's say that he had agreed, uh, uh, he was a contractor and somebody agreed to pay him such and such money and he labored for 12 hours in the heat, in here, with, with, with no AC, doing all this, but then the contractor decides to hire Joseph uh, for one hour's work and he pays Paul and Joseph the same amount. What? What? What's going on here? Does that seem 
fair? How do you think these, these workers that worked all day long are going to respond when uh, the, the people who work for only one hour get paid the exact same amount? They've been out there working 12 hours. These others hired last only worked for one hour and the master paid them the same amount, one denarius. And so, but remember, those hired first get paid last. So they're watching this. They're watching everybody get paid. And they see, oh wow, this, these guys that, that only worked one hour, he paid them one denarius. We, we, we must be gonna get twelve. I mean, by that standard, one hour, one denarius, he must have changed his mind. He's gonna pay us twelve. But as they watch, the master pays every set of worker the same amount and even pays those who labored all day the same amount. This doesn't seem fair. Dr. Albert Moeller said deep down, we don't really like this parable. We might not admit it. Oh, it's the Bible. Jesus said it. Of course I agree with this. But if you were that guy hired at 6 a.m., who worked all day and got paid what you got paid, you have to ask yourself, how would you feel about that? Now, deep down, we don't really like this parable. This parable is not about fair business practices. This has nothing to do about how you should run a business if you're an employer or employee. This parable is an earthly story with a heavenly, spiritual, divine meaning. And the denarius represents, the reward represents eternal life. Eternal life. Well, what, 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 what does the parable of the amazing grace of the Master teach us? What does the parable of the amazing grace of the Master teach us? Look at verses 11 through 16. How did they respond? Well, we're going to see. And on receiving it, they grumbled. They grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you, as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Again, beloved, remember, that's how he started this parable, except he uh, 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 just um, interchanged the, the, the clauses there. The first will be last, the last will be first, the last will be first, the first will be last. And I love I loved John MacArthur's interpretation of that. Everybody finishes at the same time. I think the, the parable confirms that's how we should understand that proverb. Everybody finishes at the same time. What should we learn from this? Well, I have several things. If you've ever been taught that all parables only have one meaning, you should erase that from your mind. That's wrong. That was wrong for the person to teach you that. 
All parables don't just have one basic meaning. That's wrong. Erase that from your mind. Whoever taught you that, don't teach that. There are lots of things we should learn from this parable. There might be one main thing. Uh, 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 um, Dr. Blumberg argues there are three main points to this parable, but there are many things we can learn from this parable. First, Jesus condemns works righteousness legalism and jealous comparison or envy. Jesus here condemns works righteousness legalism and jealous comparison or envy. Jesus, again, is reminding His disciples as, as Peter asked the question, what are we getting out of this? Don't pursue works righteousness legalism or jealous comparison. Let's take those one at a time. Avoid works righteousness Legalism. Beloved, you may think you know this. I may think I know this. You may be able to explain the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but I guarantee you, you still struggle with works righteousness legalism. You still struggle with trusting that God loves you. You still struggle with believing that by faith alone you're justified before God and not by your performance as a parent, as a worker, as a pastor, as a whatever. You struggle with that. You do. I know it. Because I know human nature. And so we need to be reminded. Don't pursue works righteousness legalism. What is that? Well, you cannot earn God's favor. You cannot earn God's favor. The focus uh, of these grumblers uh, at the, the end of this parable was on what they'd earned. Verse 12, we have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. We earned this. We worked harder than anyone. We've left all and followed you. What will we have? If we ask that question in a way that implies we've earned this or we deserve this reward, then we miss grace. We, we, we miss God's love for us. Beloved, you can't work for God's love. He loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love and underneath are the everlasting arms. You cannot earn your forgiveness from God. You cannot earn your justification before God. You, 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 you can simply receive it by faith alone. Romans 4, 4 through 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to him who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There's a contrast here between wage working and grace working. You can't earn forgiveness. You can't earn God's love. You can't earn God's favor. It's freely given to the one who does not work, but trusts Him, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. No pastoring is going to justify me before God. No parenting. No parenting is going to justify you before God that you're a good person because all your kids turned out well. You won't be justified by parenting. No success that you, you achieve in life 
whether in your job or some other realm, sports, education, no success is going to justify you before God. No, no level or degree of obedience that you perform for God is going to justify you before God. Pleasing others, being a people pleaser, is not going to justify you before God. Nothing justifies except Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And, and as you labor for God, let, let it be that joy in God that, that propels you to do service to God. Let, let it be that, that knowledge that you are loved and accepted by God, that you are adopted into His family, that no matter how much you sin, He'll forgive you more, that you can't out-sin Him. Where grace abounds, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Let the knowledge of that, that you're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, and that joy that you have in God Himself, that joy you have in your Savior, let that be what propels you to love and obedience to God. Nehemiah 8.10 The joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm 37.4 Delight yourself in the Lord. Beloved, if you, you focus on that, you will not uh, uh, fall into works, righteousness, legalism. But you'll trust in Jesus alone as your Savior and find your identity in Jesus Christ alone and, and the joy of the Lord will move you to obey. And number two, avoid jealous comparisons and envy. Avoid jealous comparisons and, and envy. Verse 12, these last... Uh, these grumbling workers said, only work one hour and you have made them equal to us. And then, and then the, 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 the master of the house says in verse 15, do you begrudge my generosity? I mean, it, literally it is, is your eye evil because I am good? They, 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 they're looking around and comparing. How am I doing compared to this person? How am I doing compared to that? You've made us equal to them. Looking around, jealousy, envy, comparison. Like the elder brother. Remember the, the prodigal sons? The prodigal sons in Luke 15. The young son basically says to his dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance so I can go. And, and this, the father gives him inheritance and he goes and he wasted on prodigal living, selling prostitutes and partying and mess and garbage and wastes all the inheritance. The elder brother, he stays at home with dad, faithfully working, bearing the heat of the day. Never left, never said something so bad to his father. Wish you were dead, give me my inheritance. But stayed in the home and faithfully labored. Well, the young guy, the young brother, he, he, he basically loses everything and it gets to the point where he has to feed pigs to live, but then he comes to himself and he says, I should, I should just go back to my father and, and, and ask for forgiveness from heaven and from him and, and say, make me a slave because my dad's slaves have it better than I do. And so he goes back to the father and the father sees his son from afar off like he's waiting, like the hound of heaven. He's waiting and he runs out to his son 
and, and hugs him and is so happy that his son who was lost has now been found and comes back and he, 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 he orders a party to be, 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 be planned and, and, and slaughters the fattened calf and has this big party that his son who was lost is now found. Well, the elder brother sees this. What? I have been faithful all this time. I never did this evil wickedness. Basically telling my dad I want him dead, take his inheritance and waste it on prostitutes. I never lived this way. I've been faithfully working. And, and my dad throws a party. He never threw me a party. See that sinful comparison. The elder brother doesn't like this. The generosity, the grace, the love that he's shown the younger brother. And the father says, listen, all that I have is yours, elder brother. I've never stopped loving you, never stopped caring for you. But this jealousy, this envy, this comparison is going on in his heart. It, it would be like the disciples if, if they, they, they see the thief on the cross. So, so, so think of the disciples, how long they followed Jesus, how much suffering they'd endured for Jesus, giving their lives for Jesus. As we mentioned last week, all of them except one died because they followed Jesus. Some facing excruciating deaths because they followed Jesus. And then once they get to heaven, they see the thief on the cross right beside him. And they're like, what? Jesus, we followed you three years. We, 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 we preached the gospel. We, I was crucified upside down and suffered for you. And you're making the thief on his deathbed, this wicked, evil man, equal to me, who bore the heat of the day? He's saying, don't do that. Repent of sinful comparison. Repent of this sinful envy. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. They all going to finish at the same time. Avoid jealousy, comparison, and envy. And we're, we're actually called as Christians to consider others better than ourselves. Beloved, this really gets at the heart of our sin because we, we can hide this, but we know what we think when we see another person. We know the thoughts of looking down on others. Oh, that poor so-and-so. We would never say it. We, we have enough Christianity in our veins to know you don't say that. But friend, what do you think when you see other people? Do you consider them better than yourself? Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And beloved, we, we have the hope of heaven that that, that, that that sin in our hearts will someday all be gone. I mean, I, I mentioned to you that this parable has, has deeply challenged my view of eternal rewards. I, I came to study this passage believing that there are different degrees of reward in heaven for different believers. Uh, and I took the view of, of Jonathan Edwards, John Piper, many Reformed people take that view. And my, my view was that we're all going to have different capacities to enjoy God in, in, in heaven. So this is basically Piper and Edwards but, but we're all going to have an overflowing cup of joy in God. Nobody's, everybody's going to be satisfied and happy. But some people, based on their faithfulness, are going to have bigger cups than others and greater capacity to enjoy God. Everybody's cup's going to overflow with joy. But some people are going to have bigger cups and capacities to enjoy God in the new world. 
This parable challenged me on that. I'm not settled on it, but this really challenged me on this. But even if you have that view of rewards, varying degrees of reward, the truth about heaven is there will be no comparisons. I love this. In, in Jonathan Edwards' uh, essay, Heaven, a World of Love, he writes about the fact that there will be perfect love in heaven. So there will be no envy or jealousy. Those given authority over five cities, for instance, in Luke 19, will not be jealous of those given authority over ten cities, but the fact that someone else enjoys more blessings of God will only serve to increase your joy. Because there's no envy in in heaven. There's only perfect love. And so if somebody gets something better than you in heaven, it will only serve to make you happier. Oh yes, I'm so happy Sister Lena's closer to God than I am. Praise God, I love Sister Lena. And I'm so happy that her cup's bigger than mine. There's no jealousy. It will only serve my joy that someone has more than me in heaven. And so Jesus warned here in this parable to, 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 to avoid jealousy and comparison and envy. God always does what's right. Even when he does, even when what he does doesn't seem right to us. Right? That's in this parable. This does not seem right to these workers. But even when you don't think it's right, everything God does is right. I mean, think of, think of Job, right? Think of Job and what he suffered. Losing his children, losing all of his, uh, 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 great and, 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 and vast wealth. But God is good. And God is right. And God knows what He's doing. And God wants us to trust Him. Think of Joseph and all he suffered. His brothers throwing him into a pit, selling him into slavery. All the things that he endured. But all that God does is right. All that God does is right. Beloved, do you think God has been unfair to you? Do you think that God has not given you the gifts or the life that He should give you? He's calling you to trust Him and rest in Him that He loves you and that He knows what's best. Jesus also shows us in this parable that God always does what's right. Look at verse 4. The third hour workers, the third hour workers go into the vineyard too and whatever is right I will give you. Whatever is right, I will give you. Verse 13, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? This parable not only warns the disciples and us to avoid works righteous legalism and to avoid sinful comparison, it also shows us that God always does what's right. Even when it doesn't seem right to us. I already gave you the examples of Job, of Joseph. What about the, the, the death of Christ? What about the death of Christ? That's a wonderful example of God always doing what's right. That is the worst sin ever committed in the history of the world. And yet God, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. God always does what is right and good. And we see that illustrated in this parable. And beloved, He always does right in your life, in your life, whatever you might be suffering, whatever you might be facing, whatever hardships, losses, pains, God does what's right. As one has said, you may not be able to 
understand what He's doing with His hand, but you can always trust His heart. You can always trust His heart. Charles Spurgeon said, remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Elizabeth Elliot, who lost two of her husbands, was widowed twice, said, God never withholds from His child that which His love and wisdom call good. God's refusals are always merciful. They are severe mercies at times, but mercies all the same. God never denies us our heart's desire except to give us something better. God never desires us our heart's desire except to give us something better. So we learn from this parable that God always does what's right. Next, Jesus teaches in this parable the absolute freedom and sovereignty of God. This parable is the Romans 9 of Matthew's Gospel. This parable is the Romans 9 of Matthew's Gospel. Look at verses 14 through 15. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Do you hear Romans 9 in that? I will do what I please with my own. I choose. I will give. I will give a denarius to whom I give a denarius, and I will withhold it from whom I withhold it. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will give mercy to whom I give mercy. Romans 9, 9 through 24 shows us the absolute freedom and sovereignty of God. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9 of Romans 9. You might want to turn there in your Bibles. Romans 9, beginning in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. To which we might naturally respond, that's not fair. That's not fair. And, and how does Paul answer, well, this is really about nations, not individuals, so it is really fair. No, that's not what he says. That's what false teachers say to try to make this sound more fair. But that's not what Paul says. That's not what the Holy Spirit says. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Oh, well, <laughs> hate doesn't really mean hate here. Let's make this sound better. Hate doesn't really mean hate. That's what false teachers say, but that's not what Paul says. <laughs> Paul expects you to think this is unfair. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I will give a denarius to whomever I please, no matter how long they worked or didn't work. 
So then it depends not on human will. Oh, there's a free will, man. People want to make a God out of free willy. No, God turns man's will as He pleases. Proverbs 21. He turns the heart of a king wherever He pleases. Takes the most powerful man on earth. And God turns that will like He pleases. There's no almighty free will of man. Free will is not God. God is God. Don't make a God out of free willy. This is what God says to Moses. I will have mercy on him I have mercy. And I have compassion on him I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Here, here again, here again, uh, the Holy Spirit is anticipating our objections. This is not fair. You, 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 you hardened Pharaoh's heart, God. You, you, you chose him for this. You, you hardened him. How can you find fault? How can you hold him responsible? How can you blame him? This is what you ordained for him. Who resists your will, God? Oh, well, you've misunderstood the passage. It's about nations, not individuals. That's not what God says. Basically, God says, shut your mouth, Paul. Shut your mouth, rhetorical question asker. Put your hand on your mouth. Do you know who you're talking to? This is God Almighty. That's basically what, how Paul writes this. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Oh, beloved, do you see the great mercy of God? God did not have to choose you. He did not have to choose me. He would have been just. He would have been just to let me go my own way in high school and just continue to pursue the applause and glory of man. In love with money and stuff. In love with 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 wanting to be a professional athlete or a fighter pilot. Just let me do that for Joseph Randall's own glory and then live a wonderful life on earth and die and go to hell. He could have let me do that. Praise God He didn't. Praise God He chose to have mercy. Friends, do you feel that today? Beloved, do you feel that today God chose to have mercy on you? If you're a Christian, He could have hardened you just like Pharaoh and sent you to hell for the praise of His glorious justice, but He didn't. He chose to have mercy on you. He chose to have mercy on you. That's what this parable is about. Jesus teaches the absolute freedom and sovereignty of God in having mercy and showing grace. 
Beloved, this parable also teaches that, that God is extravagantly and lavishly generous. God is, is extravagantly and lavishly generous. Look at verse 15. Or do you begrudge my generosity? These, these, these we're all day workers are mad because God has been generous. The, 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 the master who, who represents God has been generous to these workers. This, this points us, beloved, to the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the lavish, extravagant grace of God. God is good. God is generous. God loves to give us what is good and loving and what is best for us. Is that how you view God? Do you view God as, as one who's chasing you down to bless you? Or do you view Him as this strict person in the sky who's watching every move and the first step you get out of line crush you like a gnat? How do you view God? Many of us really view Him that way. I wrestle with that. Just waiting for me to do something wrong punish me. That's, that's not how we should view God as His children. Pray that God would work that out of you. Steve DeHaze is reading a book called The Pleasures of God by John Piper and he sent me something this week that I think is very applicable to this point that, that God is extravagantly and lavishly generous. Piper writes, we go up and down in our enjoyments. We get bored and discouraged one day and feel hopeful and excited another. We're like little geysers that gurgle and sputter and pop erratically. But God is like the great Niagara Falls. He is like, I've never been there, but He is like the great Niagara Falls. You look at it and think, surely this can't keep going at this force for year after year after year after year after year. It seems like it would have to rest. Or it seems like some place upstream it would run dry. But no, it just keeps surging and crashing and making honeymooners happy century after century after century. That's the way God is about doing good. That's the way God is about doing us good. He never grows weary of it. It never gets boring to Him. Psalm 35, 27. Let those who desire my vindication shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of His servants. God delights to do you good, beloved. He delights to chase you down. Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall chase you down all the days of your life. That's what follow means. It's the word radaf in Hebrew, which is most often translated in the Old Testament for enemies chasing people down, running after. Piper gives the illustration of, of it's like a police officer Chasing you down at 150 miles an hour out on 76 or 95, but not to arrest you, but to bless you. Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue you all the days of your lives. 
Jeremiah 32, 39 through 41, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul, God says. I will not turn away from doing good to you, God says. I will rejoice in doing you good, God says. With all my heart and with all my soul, God says, I will rejoice to do you good. Beloved, that's our God. He's a God of, of extravagant and lavish generosity and grace. Jesus also teaches in this parable that that we should be thankful and amazed by this grace. We should be thankful and amazed by this grace. These workers shouldn't be grumbling or, or begrudging the Master's generosity. They should be amazed that He chose to hire them in the first place. They should be amazed that He gave them what He gave them. These grumbling first group workers should have responded the way the servants are told to in Luke 17, 7 through 10. Luke 17, 7 through 10. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Beloved, it is very helpful to remember what we deserve. It, it's helpful to remember that. It, it's helpful for your love, for your joy. It, it's helpful for your endurance to the end to be saved. It, it, it's, it's helpful to remember what we deserve, and to not take advantage of grace. I love the illustration R.C. Sproul gives when he used to be a teacher at a college and he gave out term papers and he said this first term paper is due on, let's say, October 15th. And he had 250 students and the first time the term papers were due, 50 people didn't turn them in on time. And so... R.C. Sproul says, well, okay, just get them in the next week and that'll be okay. And, and they did. Well, the next time the term papers were due, a hundred people didn't turn them in on time. And they begged, oh, Mr. Sproul, we had this come up, we had that come up, and we had to do this. And he said, okay, get them in next week. They got them in next week. The third time the term papers were due, uh, uh, 200 people didn't turn them in on time. And they're like, oh, don't worry, Dr. Sproul, we'll get into you next week. And, and Dr. Sproul realized that these, these students were taking advantage of his grace. And so he said to one of the guys, um, no, you're going to get an F. And the guy's like, what? What? You've let, you've, you've let us be late all these last three times. Why, why, why are you giving me an F? I want justice. That's not fair. And so Dr. Sproul says, oh, you want fairness? Were your last two term papers on time or late? You want justice? Okay, you get an F for that one and an F for the first one too. Three Fs. 
You want justice, I'll give you justice. Beloved, it's good to remember what we deserve. It's good to remember what we deserve. And, and, and all that, that I deserve as your pastor, all that I deserve is hell. That's what I deserve. That's what I deserve. All I deserve is hell. Not one thing better, not one thing less. I deserve God's everlasting torment in hell forever for my sin. That's what I deserve. As D.A. Carson put it, do you really want nothing but total, effective, instantaneous justice? Then go to hell. That's what we deserve for our sin. And yet, look what God has given us. Look what God has given us. We, we don't have to go to hell. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, I, I want you to know this, that that's true of you. All you deserve is hell. Because of your sin against a holy and good God. But the good news of the Gospel is that God loves sinners. He, he loves people who have had sex outside of marriage. He loves people who have lied and cheated and stolen. He, he loves people who are addicted to pornography. He loves homosexuals and transvestites and transgender people. He loves sinners. He loves sinners. Do you qualify? I hope you realize you do because that's the only way you can get help is that you realize you're a sinner. By the way, I just answered... Uh, uh, a prayer, a prayer, a answer to prayer. We pray. We're on Wednesday night. We're studying uh, sexual issues in the culture, especially like homosexuality, like transgenderism, like these sexual perversions. Male, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. We're studying that on Wednesday night. And one of the things we prayed, God, let us meet these people. We love them. We want homosexuals to come to Christ. We want transgender people to come to Christ. We want them to be saved. And guess what God did? God answered our prayer and brought one right up to Monette and I on Friday afternoon, Friday morning, in, in front of the abortion clinic. <laughs> Man just came straight up to us and said, I'm gay, but I, I want to be a Christian. I was born in the Baptist church. And we were able to talk to him in both English and Creole. And we want to pray for Him that He gets saved. That's what we prayed for. God loves sinners. And he, he wants to shower His grace on sinners and save sinners. And so He sent His Son, Jesus, the God-man. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. He's truly God and truly man. And He lived a perfect life. He never sinned in thought, word, or deed. He's the only one who never sinned. And then He died on that cross where He suffered God's curse and judgment and wrath. He took the hell that we deserve. He was buried. On the third day, He rose from the dead. So that all, no matter what you've done, how bad you've been, no matter what hour of your life, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. You shall be forgiven. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Friend, would you believe today? If you've not believed, would you believe today? Today is the day of salvation. We want you to leave this place saved and born again. Please come and talk to me afterwards. Talk to another believer. We, we want you to get right with God today by faith alone in Christ alone. And when you do that, when you trust Jesus, when you believe on Him, 
He casts all your sins behind His back and remembers them no more. As far as the east is from the west, He removes your transgressions from you. That's the good news of the Gospel. He adopts you into His family and calls you His child and pursues you the rest of your life with goodness and mercy and works everything together for your good. And though you deserve hell, now you get the promise of fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore someday in heaven where He'll wipe away all tears from your eyes. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Jesus teaches that we should be thankful and amazed by grace. And Jesus teaches as well that there is a fundamental equality that we all share as disciples of Jesus Christ. There is a fundamental equality that we all share as disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, 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 this is, this is where my understanding of rewards in heaven was challenged, and I'm not settled on this yet, but I, I read this in Craig Blumberg, Blumberg's uh, commentary, and then he, he referenced uh, a theological journal article, 14 pages long, and I read that, and in that he actually answers all the texts that most people go to to say, no, there are different degrees of rewards in heaven. He answers those texts and says why he doesn't think that necessitates that, and why he thinks this parable necessitates no degrees of reward in heaven. Now, he does say there is a degree of reward on judgment day, uh, but then those varying degrees are all turned over to the feet of Jesus, and for all eternity, there's equality in heaven amongst God's people. Now, good men disagree on this, so that's something you're going to have to study and come to your own conclusions about. But this is what Bloomberg says based on this parable. Um, Latecomers receive the same reward. Tax collectors and sinners receive the same reward. Gentiles who join God's people later than the Jews receive the same reward. People who come to faith later in life, Christians who have different degrees of commitment and faithfulness, receive the same rewards. And I actually emailed him, and again, he blows my socks off because I emailed him last night at 10 o'clock, and within eight minutes, he'd answered my email. <laughs> him, he, him and Shriner, they amazed me. They answered me within 10 minutes um, at 10 o'clock at night. Of course, he's in Denver, so it's probably 8 o'clock. Uh, but, but I ask him this question. So you're saying that you believe that the Apostle Paul received the same reward in heaven as the thief on the cross? Yes. That's his position. And so he writes, the significance of this parable can scarcely be overestimated. Luke 12, 47-48 teaches that there are degrees of punishment in hell. Matthew 20, verses 1-16 through teaches that there are no degrees of reward in heaven. Neither of these facts is commonly known or understood in Christian circles. To be sure, every individual will have a highly unique experience before God on Judgment Day. See 1 Corinthians 3, 10-15. But no text of Scripture supports the notion that these differences are perpetuated throughout eternity. The very nature of grace and perfection precludes such a concept. The reason we object to equal treatment for all is precisely the objection of the workers in this parable. It doesn't seem fair. So that's his position. I'm going to have to study that more uh, to come to a final position on that. But there is something this parable teaches us about equality in heaven. And there is a bunch of stuff we can say for sure that no matter who you are, there's equality. And so that's what I'm going to emphasize now. We can say this at least. Everyone receives the same pay in this parable. That's very clear. 
There is a sense in which the reward is exactly the same for every true believer. In what sense is that? If you are in Christ, you are all God's children. Thief on the cross is God's child. Apostle Paul, God's child. You are all loved by God with an everlasting love. Thief on the cross, loved by God with everlasting love. Apostle Paul, loved by God with an everlasting love. You all have the same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that converted the thief on the cross is the same Holy Spirit that converted the Apostle Paul. You are all equally justified before God. You all have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that righteousness cannot be increased or decreased throughout all eternity. You will all be equally sanctified someday conformed fully and perfectly into the image of Jesus Christ. Everybody. That's all equal. You will all enter into the joy of your Master if you're a Christian. You will all get God as a believer. You will all have fullness of joy and pleasures for more someday in God's very presence. You will all be fully saved, fully safe, and fully satisfied in the new heavens and the new earth someday. You will all be totally and fully happy. You will all have no more pain, no more death, no more sin, and no more tears throughout all eternity someday. And in that sense, we all get the same eternal life. Beloved, I, I wanted to try to make you feel, feel what the workers who were hired first felt. I wanted to try to make you feel that. I've done this before, but I want to try it again, that God grants saved sinners lavish, extravagant grace. I sort of want to make you a little bit mad about grace at first, but then I want you to be amazed at grace. So let's try this. Did anyone hear the name Lucy Letby this week? Lucy Letby is now, has the title of the, basically the, the, the most horrific serial killer in the history of the United Kingdom. She's a neonatal nurse. She was a neonatal nurse in the United Kingdom, in England. And she was found guilty this month of murdering seven babies under her care by deliberately injecting the babies with air, force-feeding them with milk, or poisoning them with insulin. Thirteen babies suffered under her violent acts, at least. The BBC article states the parents of twin brothers who were among Letby's 13 victims have told the BBC that the nurse was a hateful human being who had taken everything from them. Letby murdered one of their baby boys and tried to kill the other twin the following day. The jury was shown a note found in her home which read, I am evil. I did this. What a wicked thing to do. A neonatal nurse in a hospital with little helpless babies injecting them with insulin to kill them Killed the tw killed the twin, and 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 in some cases these children are forever uh, they're alive, but they're forever uh, facing the side effects of the evil of what this woman did. Can you imagine if it were your baby? I mean, parents, just think about that. A nurse at the hospital injected insulin into your baby in the neonatal unit and killed your baby. That's going to make you feel some type of way. 
So I'm going to talk about the law and the gospel. The law is this woman is evil. She deserves to die. She deserves God's wrath in hell forever. And I want to point this out, friends. Basically, what she did is what abortion is. Basically, what she did is what abortion is. This is pro-choice. Yeah, they're in the womb. They're in the womb instead of right outside the womb. But this is abortion. This is the pro-choice position. And she deserves hell. And I deserve God's wrath in hell too. What about God's mercy and grace? What about the gospel? Let's say, this is my speculation here, let's say that she never shows remorse for these horrific crimes. That she never says, I'm sorry. That she remains cold-hearted and hateful all of her life. Let's say that a faithful prison chaplain shares the gospel with her over and over and over again, but she rejects the gospel and refuses Christ over and over and over again. But then, 60, 70 years later, after a a life of hard-heartedness and callousness over what she's done, the chaplain comes back again and he shares the gospel with her on her deathbed. And she, by the grace of God, is brokenhearted. The Holy Spirit works. The Word of God that's a fire and a hammer breaks into her heart. She sees her sin for what it is, evil and ugly. She sees the beauty of Jesus Christ. She repents and she believes the Gospel. She's saved. She's born again. She will be with Christ in paradise. She will be with Christ in paradise. That make anybody mad? She will be with Christ in paradise just as much as the one who was born in a Christian family, came to faith at ten, faithfully served Jesus all their life, and then died and go to heaven. They will both be with Christ in paradise, and they will equally be God's children, equally be loved of God, equally be filled with joy in God, equally be justified before God, equally have righteousness in Christ. For people who are legalists, that makes them mad. People who are moralists, they hate that. Because they've been looking to their life in Christ to get something for them in heaven. And they don't like the grace of God. Because they worked for it. And they should get something for it. I know a friend like that. I have a friend who's a moralist. He loves to talk about how evil this particular political party is and how evil these people are and how evil these people do. And if you're that way, you're of the devil. Oh, he loves to talk about righteousness and sin. And I gave him that documentary, American Gospel, which talks about the free grace of God. That the vilest offender who truly believes from that moment from Jesus a pardon receives for all their sin. He did not like that at all. He did not like that. Moralists, legalists, Pharisees, they don't like this. They don't like the thief on the cross. Because they think they're earning heaven. Friend, that's the Gospel. The Gospel is that Lucy Letby can be saved if she repents and believes the Gospel. And you will enjoy heaven with her someday if you repent and believe too. I need the same grace that Lucy let me needs to be forgiven of my sins. And we get all of this all because of Jesus Christ and His finished work. We want to come back to Jesus. 
What about Jesus? What about the laborer of all laborers? What about the worker of all workers, Jesus Christ? He worked like no man ever worked. He worked an infinite number of hours. He bore the greatest burden of the day in the most scorching heat of the day as He was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. He conquered the greatest assaults of the devil and perfectly obeyed God's law. On that cross, Jesus bore the great burden of our sin and the scorching heat of the infinite wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. And Jesus was not paid the wage that He earned. He's the only one who ever actually could and did earn the wage of eternal life by His own good works, but He was not paid that wage. He was paid the wage of the most vile sinner who's ever lived. Suffering, pain, death, and hell. He took all of this because He who knew no sin was made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him and have everlasting life. He got our wages, death and hell. We get His wages, everlasting life and glory. And He rose up from the dead so that the last will be first and the first will be last. Beloved, this is extravagant, lavish grace. In the kingdom of heaven, there will be no sinful comparisons or works righteousness legalism. God always does what's right. God is absolutely sovereign and free to give grace to whom He pleases. God is extravagantly generous, so we should be thankful and amazed by grace. And all God's children are fundamentally equal. In His sight. Christ is the God of lavish grace. The master of each house and space. Who came and ran a sinless race. The holy, good, grand, giving ace. Who gave it all to sin erase. Upon that cross, God's wrath defaced. He died and rose to death displaced. In Him we're just. God rest His case. By faith alone, Christ we embrace. One day by grace we'll see His face. All tears and pain He will replace with joys and pleasures in that place. Of sin and death there will be no trace but everlasting mercy chase. All because He saves by grace. Father, we do ask that You would help us to have a special and powerful and true deep apprehension of Your grace toward us in Christ. Father, we pray that You would help us see that, there, there, that, that we should not compare ourselves with others or envy others or be jealous of others. We pray that You would keep us from works righteousness, legalism in our lives by the way that we live for You. We, we ask God that we would be absolutely secure that we are loved by You and justified by Christ alone and by faith alone in Christ alone. That we would do what we do in love and joy in You. We pray, God, that You would remind us this day that You always do what's right, even in the hard things in our lives. Help us trust You that You are just and righteous. Father, remind us that You are sovereign and that You give Your grace freely, that You've chosen us, you predestined us before the foundation of the world. Help us to be amazed at Your mercy and grace and free sovereign choice. Lord, we pray that You would help us see You as You are, the, the generous, giving, gracious God. 
Lord, make us thankful. Make us amazed at grace. God, remind us that we are all equally Your children and loved by You. And Father, we pray that this knowledge of You would, would deeply affect how we live our lives. That we would be a loving, gracious people to others. That we would be patient with others as You've been patient with us. That we would be eager to tell people about the Gospel that they might be saved. So Father, work in us, change us, make us all that You want us to be. Thank You for Your extravagant, lavish grace. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.